Now our scripture reading will be taken from the book of Romans chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 24 to 32 as we continue on in our study of this book of Romans. I want to remind us that this is a text that's written to Rome. Keep that in mind because this is not light stuff that Paul is writing to Rome. And also you'll notice this is certainly not a back-slapping message that he's about to give to Rome that just basically said God loves you just the way you are and hope you enjoy life. This is pretty serious business here as we look at our text today. It starts in verse 24 with the conjunction, therefore, which points back to the fact that God has basically given people knowledge of himself, intuitive knowledge of himself, and they've suppressed that knowledge. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural, and in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the women and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. What a depiction of depravity. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of that inspired passage and the exposition later. Will you join with me please in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we bow before thee on this Lord's Day to thank you for your righteousness, thank you for your justice, thank you for your goodness, thank you for your grace. We read this passage in your precious inspired word and we see the depravity that has existed at times within our own hearts. We see the great need to depend on thee and upon thy spirit that we can reflect the righteousness of God. Lord, we're fearful that you are in the process of giving up this country. We look at this list of things here and we see a real symmetry between this text and our nation. We would humbly ask that for thy namesake and for thy people's sake, you would use your sovereign might and power to intervene in government at every level and cause leaders to make right choices that will help your people. We know we do not deserve that, but we would ask, Lord, for thy sovereign grace intervention. Lord, it is a privilege to go through life together as a family of believers. There's no higher place really on this earth than the church of God in this dispensation, and it's a privilege to share life with people, and we know that Part of that includes going through valleys with them that are perhaps dark. We want to pray for the Elfinar family, the loss of Dan's mother. We pray for the Noel family, the loss of Walt's mother. We pray for those that are 
going to be having surgery. We think of Becky Davis and Hank Ritzema and Dennis Fritz and Mary Thompson. We pray for successful surgeries and outcomes in each and every one of those instances and cases. And we pray for the spiritual condition of each of us, Lord. We pray that we would continue to grow. I pray we would finish pleasing to thee. May we get before thee and be unashamed when we enter heaven. And one more thing, Lord, we would pray, just come get us soon. In Jesus' name, amen. The story I'm about to tell you is true. It did not happen here in this city, so it's not connected to anyone in this city, but it's a very factual account of what I'm about to tell you. A few years ago, there was a very godly father and mother who had a rebellious child. That child did not want to listen to the parents. The child did not want to obey the parents, did not want the God of the parents, did not want to be taught the word of God. This child didn't want to hear the word of God that the parents were advising the child to listen to. And over the years, that child got in trouble. He was drawn to godless friends who did a lot of godless things, and he got into drugs. At some of those moments, he would reach out to his parents. And many times, those parents tried to help the child get back on track. But then, shortly after the child got back on track, he got into the old habits, just like a dog returns to vomit. So finally, one day, the father said to the child, you're on your own. We'll not help you again. We're done. The next time you get into trouble, don't reach out to us. Because we're all through trying to help you. Well, the child did get into trouble again. And one night, the parents got a call because the child was in jail. And the son said to the father, can you come help me and bail me out? The dad said, no. No. You're on your own. It's the way you want it in your life. So live your life. And in a short while, the son was dead. It was a hard decision for that father and mother to make, but I'm convinced it was a very right decision. That child reached a point where his parents said, you know what, we're giving you up. There's nothing more we can do. You don't want our help. You don't want truth. So go your own way. We're abandoning you. You think, well, that doesn't really seem to be consistent with biblical Christianity. Oh, yes, it does. Because that is exactly what God does right here in the book of Romans. It must be hard for God to do that, but he will do it. Donald Gray Barnhouse said, when you come to this text, these verses in Romans are some of the most terrible in the New Testament because it does show that a person can actually reach a point where they are abandoned by God. There does come a moment when God will say, you're on your own. You're heading to hell, and I'm not going to lift one finger to stop it. You'll notice that verse 24, as we pointed out in the scripture reading this morning, begins with that conjunction, therefore. It's a conjunction deo in Greek, which means on account of, because of. Paul said, in view of the fact that God has given you so much information, 
And in view of the fact that you've taken that information and suppressed that information, you deserve God's wrath. He said, you have knowledge of God, you suppress the truth. You have knowledge of God and you're without excuse. You have knowledge of God, you don't honor God. You have knowledge of God, you're not thankful. You have knowledge of God, yet you invent your own futile speculations about God. You have knowledge of God, but you've darkened your foolish hearts against God. You've invented your own moronic knowledge, and you've changed the glory of God into whatever you want to be. So he said, that's what you do. God gives you his wonderful word, his intuition of who he is and how great he is, and you take that information and you basically just stifle that information. So when you come to this text of scripture, there's one more thing God says, I'll do. And that is, I will make a judicial decision to abandon my people and send them to hell. I'll abandon people and send them to hell. I'll remove restraints. I'll remove convictions. I will see to it they end up eternally burning forever. In other words, Paul says because of the depravity of humans, and God is the father of all humans. So in some respects, in a general sense, all people are here via a decree of God. God said, I literally can make a right decision not to save people. I can make a decision to decide to condemn people to my wrath because they have just totally disregarded me and my word, and there won't be a thing that a person can do to stop it or prevent it. There are a scary couple of verses, if this isn't scary enough, in 2 Thessalonians 2, 10 to 11. And in 2 Thessalonians 2, 10 to 11, Paul writes, They did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so they will believe what is false. God does not play games with people. They can reach a point where God says, I've had it. And you will notice three times in this section, you'll read the words, God gave them over. God gave them up. And when you read those words, you're talking here about judicial abandonment. He gives them over to their depravity. He gives them over to the consequences of their sin. He gives them over to hell. And this is more than just a passive permission of God just letting a person go his or her own way. We're talking here about a God who actually makes a judicial decision and judgment to withdraw restraint. He withdraws conviction. He withdraws opportunities for grace. He pronounces some judgment upon people and he condemns them to wrath. He basically says, I am going to push you into condemnation. You've crossed the line and there's nothing you can do to stop it. It's serious what is said here. And Paul is writing this to Rome, the highest place of government that was in existence. He's writing this to Rome. And there are three main abandonment themes that he presents. Number one, God abandons people because of their pursuit of sexual lusts. Verse 24, therefore God gave them over to the lust of their hearts to impurity. Now, sexual activity is a wonderful, enjoyable thing to have between a husband and wife, but you move out of that relationship. 
You move away from the husband-wife relationship and move into sexual lust, you'll entangle yourself in a mess of unstrained debauchery. And you can pull yourself into a situation that you can't even get out from, and God can sentence you there. Most people do not realize the danger that exists when it comes to pursuing sexual lust. Lustful sexual immoral things start in the heart, they start in the mind. The possibility of being judged by God to a death sentence for sexual immorality is found in both the Old and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, in a text like Leviticus, God gives a series of different types of sexually immoral things, and he says those people who do that are worthy of death. And you say, well, I know, but we're in the grace age, we're in the church age, so that doesn't have any relevancy to the Old Testament law. Well, when you get to Jesus Christ addressing the church of Thyatira, you had them pursuing immoral things, idolatrous things, and Jesus said to that church, I'm going to start executing people, death. It is possible for God to hand a person over to their lust to the point they can't stop it. They just can't even stop it anymore. It's like a magnet that's got them. It draws them in. They persist in doing that which is irrational. They persist in doing that which is dishonorable. So what God says is, not only will I condemn the person who's involved in this kind of activity, I'll decree to the point that they're going to persist in that sin until they get to condemnation. This will dominate them, and they won't be able to get out of it. See, when God sees people dominated by lust, he's not just an idle spectator. If they don't purpose to deal honestly with him, with their flesh sins and failures, and seek him to walk in the ways of righteousness, God can sovereignly ordain that a lust-crazed maniac ends up doing dishonorable things with his or her own body. I mean, what could possibly be more dishonorable than to try to change your gender? How do you get there? How do you get to that level of depravity where you're trying to change your gender? You don't get that by praying about it, by studying the scriptures. It's that God says, fine, you want your lust-filled life? I'll give it to you. You just become more and more depraved. Verse 25 says these people didn't respond to God's truth. They didn't worship God. They worshiped their own sexual lust. They believed lies that the good life is a lust-fulfilled life rather than a relationship with the Lord. So God gave them over to that lifestyle, and once they have come to the end of their lives, they're going to end up burning in hell as a consequence of experiencing the wrath of God. I want to be real clear on this point. And I include myself in these discussions, so I'm not preaching at you, I'm preaching to me too. If you're given over to lust, you cannot worship God right. I'm telling you right now. I don't care if you come to as many services as you want. If you are given over to lust, you cannot worship God right. Because in the privacy of your life, you're worshiping yourself. And in the privacy of your life, you are worshiping immoral lust that really doesn't give a hoot about what the Word of God says. We're living in a lust-crazed world. We're living in a lust-crazed country. 20 million sexually transmitted diseases per year, and 10 million are between the ages of 15 and 24. 
4,543 adult bookstores in the United States. That is a 1.1 increase since 2021. There are over 4 million porn sites on the internet in this country. 68 million Americans look at porn sites every day. 68% of divorce cases are due to one mate being addicted to pornography. I'm citing just statistics here. We are living in such a lust-crazed nation that people will get mad and hateful if you tell them, you know, it's not right you kill that baby that you have because you got involved in immoral behavior. It's not right. People get angry at you. We live in a country that accepts all forms of adultery. It promotes any type of sexual perversion that's out there. We are a lust-crazed nation, and what we are actually witnessing here displays the fact that God is basically saying, I'm done with you people. I'm giving you up. You just live this out to the end of your days, and then come into eternity and face me. Dr. Jennings Bryant analyzed the effects of a lust-crazed person or nation and said there are seven negative results and effects on people who are lust-crazed or a nation that's lust-crazed. Number one, they lose their ability to make moral judgments. People that are given to lust, they lose their sense of right and wrong. They lose their sense of justice and righteousness and fairness. In fact, you end up defending things you should condemn you lose your moral compass. Number two, he said, you lose your ability to trust and be trusted. People that are given over to lust are not reliable people. You can't depend on them. Oh, they may say they'll be someplace, but they don't show up. You can't lean on them or trust them because they're lust crazy. They're sporadic. They're unreliable. They're unpredictable. They're unstable. You lose your ability to function in the right role in your family. One who's given to immoral lust can't properly relate to their mate or children. Oftentimes they neglect responsibilities because they're consumed by their own lust. So, when they're consumed by their own lust, oftentimes a parent will let children or mate do whatever they want without any direction. They're covering their secret life and they're not calling right, right, and wrong, wrong. They don't have the integrity to do that. Fourthly, you lose your ability to maintain a commitment. I'm telling you, some of the most unstable people you'll ever meet are lust-crazed people. They're unsocial, they're irrational, they're very emotional. They love their lust more than anyone or anything. Number five, you lose your ability to love. Love for a lust-crazed person is just twisted, it's distorted. True biblical development of love is not possible for somebody consumed with lust. They don't even think right. Sixthly, you lose your ability to be greatly used by God. And this is something that all believers need to understand here. God's Spirit will not and cannot greatly use a dirty, unclean vessel. I don't care how many religious services you go to. God will not allow a dirty, unclean vessel to bear fruit. God's spirit isn't going to do it. So a person who's given over to lust is just shortchanging the possibility of actually being greatly used by the Lord. Seventh, you risk being abandoned by God. 
If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ and you're living out your lusts here in this world, you're risking God saying you end up in hell and I'm going to send you there. And if you're a believer and you're lust crazed, you can be given up by God too. Oh, not to hell, but you can be given up to ignorance, weakness, sickness, death. It'll cost you rewards in eternity. It will cost you the blessings of God. So if you're one given to lust, deal with it today, because if you don't, God can give you up. What Paul is telling the Romans here is, boy, you're living in a a wild dog town there, a wild dog city. And you don't want to be consumed with lust when you're living in that city, because that's a dead-end street. Now, the second abandonment theme that Paul brings up to these people of Rome is that of homosexuality. He says in verse 26, For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. In the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the women and burned in their desire toward one another men with men. Homosexuality comes from suppressing truth that God has put within man, and a person is not born with that. It's a choice they make. And I want to tell you how homosexuals approach this text of Scripture, because I'm going to point out something real technical grammatically here. Homosexuals can't dance around this because it's in Romans. So what they've basically said is these verses here that deal with homosexuality describe a heterosexual person that changed teams. That's how they describe this. It's describing someone that originally was in a relationship with a woman, a man with a woman, or a woman with a man, and then they decided that they were going to go into a homosexual relationship or lesbian relationship after they had had that heterosexual relationship, and Paul's talking about that. No, he's not. No, he's not. And I'll tell you how I know that. The down woman that is used in verse 26 and again in verse 27 is the noun female. And the noun man that's used here is not the normal noun for man, it's the noun male. So Paul's not stressing relationships, he's stressing gender. What he's saying here is that if you have a male with a male, or you have a female with a female, I don't care what the previous relationship was, because this word doesn't even cover previous relationships. You're talking about male with male, female with female, then what you have here is an unnatural sin, an unnatural evil, and God will, in fact, and does, in fact, abandon people and condemns them to hell forever. I had a chance to talk with a former homosexual who was a leader of the movement in San Francisco. He found our website. He became a believer He loved the word of God. I asked him personally, when you were in that lifestyle, did you know deep down inside it was wrong? He said, yes, I did. Yes, I did. I knew it wasn't right. 
Deep inside the mind and heart of the homosexual and lesbian is the realization, this isn't right. But they have so suppressed the truth of God and so hardened their hearts that they've, as you'll see at the end of this text, have convinced themselves that it's okay when deep down inside they know it isn't. God's view of homosexuality is that it is a degrading, abnormal passion and perversion that will bring the wrath of God, it will bring the abandonment of God to a nation, a state, a city, and an individual. You know those parades that flaunt this? They're not sending a message of freedom, they're sending a message of abandonment. That's the way I see it. You think you're out there free, you're abandoned by God. That's what you're showing. And from God's perspective, homosexuality is a vile, unnatural sin. It's normal for a man to be sexually drawn to a woman. It's normal for a woman to be sexually drawn to a man. It's abnormal, it's immoral, it's unnatural for a man to be sexually drawn to another male or for a female to be sexually drawn to another female. That's the language in this text. I'm just explaining the language in this text to you. God views this as evil. He views it as detestable. It's an abomination in his sight in both the Old and the New Testament. And those who pursue this deserve the wrath of God. They will receive the wrath of God. They're heading to eternal condemnation. And the fact that they publicly flaunt their sin proves they're heading to hell. In fact, in verse 27... God says they will receive the due penalty for this abominable sin. I mean, you have to go low to get involved in this stuff. And the due penalty that they will receive for pursuing this sin is God says, I don't want anything to do with you people. I want nothing to do. I'll have nothing to do with you in that depravity. Now, when Paul wrote the book of Romans, which is around 80, 57, or 58, homosexuality was big stuff. Actually, probably, perhaps even bigger than in our day, if that's possible. But it was prevalent. It was flaunted by the Greeks. It was flaunted by the Romans. Fourteen of the first 15 Roman emperors were homosexuals, including Nero. Furthermore, according to Dr. Cranfield and his research, some considered this sexual perversion to be superior to a relationship between that of a man and woman. So when Paul sends this to Rome, he sends this information to Rome in opening up the gospel of God. He's giving God's truth and, frankly, a world that doesn't want to hear it. And we're living at a time just like that. We see there's a flaunting and promoting of same-sex stuff, and there's this attempt to try and make it out to be that it's just as good as a relationship between a man and woman. In fact, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you how low we've gotten in this. We're even going to try to get children to believe this stuff. How low do you have to get to do that? What level of depravity when you say, let's teach the children that this is just okay. It's an abomination in the sight of God. Do you get that? It's an abomination in the sight of God. And I have crawled through the Greek text in this. I'm going to be just as honest as I possibly can. I try to be that way all the time. There is no way crawling through this Greek text that you can put a politically correct spin on this. There's just no way. 
This is not a text that says to the homosexual, smile, God loves you. It isn't that. When you go through this passage of scripture, man, there are four conclusions that we draw here. Homosexuality is against and opposite the natural inborn passion that God has placed within every male and female. Homosexuals are made by choice, not by birth. It is a depravity choice. Don't ever forget that. It's a depravity choice. That's the way God sees it. Secondly, homosexuality is a vile, depraved, degrading sin in the sight of God. God does not classify this as an alternative lifestyle. He calls it an abominable sin. Thirdly, when homosexuality is publicly flaunted, it demonstrates that God has abandoned people. That's a scary thought. That God would not allow someone even to come to faith in his son to escape hell. That someone would be guaranteed the eternal condemnation of God. But that's the threat here. And finally, the only hope for a homosexual, the only hope for a lesbian, the only hope for any sinner, is you come to the cross of Jesus Christ by faith. There were these people in Corinth... Paul gives the list of them in 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. Some of those people had been involved in this very sin, and they had trusted the Lord. They'd been set free. So you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you get your slate clean, start over. Which brings us to the third abandonment theme, and that is God abandons people because of their mental depravity. Look. People who do not acknowledge God and his word end up with minds that do not think right. The way Paul describes it in verse 28, they end up with a depraved mind. Those are his words. They end up with a depraved mind. One commentator said, if God abandons your mind, you're doomed. Just think about that. This would be the most fearful type of abandonment that God could ever give to a human being. Abandon their minds so their thoughts aren't right. Ever right. And what's described in these verses are things that can dominate and control a mind. You suppress the truth of God. You suppress the truth of the word of God. Suppress the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And your mind can end up a disastrous mess. A mind that would have been something that could have brought glory to God can end up totally depraved in every way, shape, or form so you don't even think right. John Chrysostom said people are not just wicked, they're full of wickedness, and this wickedness is extensive. Jeremiah said the heart's deceitful, desperately wicked. Who can know it? We better know it. We better recognize it. We better acknowledge it. There are 21 things that he lists here that display a depraved mind. It's the longest list of its kind in the New Testament. The first four on the list describe a filling of the mind with general kinds of sins. The next five on the list use different adjectives, fullness, which explains specific sins. And the next 12 in the list 
describes sin against others and sin within self. It's, as one writer said, a catalog of filth. Now, as we go down through the list, and I have crawled through every single word on the list, I would ask you to check yourself in this. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you need to understand that your mind can reach levels like this so you never think right about God or his word or about righteousness. I mean, your mind can actually go there and that'll take you right into hell. I mean, that is the context of this. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and we go down through this list and you're going, man, that really dominates me. You check it. You get alone with the Lord. You talk to God about it. You ask God to give you victory in this area because I'm telling you right now, this list is a scary list. It's a list that can actually end up dominating a person's life and mind, and God can actually say, I'm not letting you out of it. The first thing on the list is the depraved mind produces a mind and life that's filled with unrighteousness. That's what verse 29 says, being filled with all unrighteousness. That's a particular word that would seem to indicate that a person can actually have a mind that cannot determine what's right and just. A person can have a mind that does not think in righteous ways. They can be dominated by a mind that doesn't think in ways that are right before the Lord. And by the way, everything on this list that's given here can actually be something that the world actually excels in. I mean, we're going to go down through this list, but this doesn't mean people in the world are stupid. People who have these things in their brains act like they're the smartest people on earth. They communicate things that don't square with the scriptures or God, but they pretend like they're the smartest people on earth. So a depraved mind produces a mind filled with unrighteousness. Secondly, a depraved mind produces a mind and life that is filled with wickedness. And that word that's used there, poneria, is a particular word that speaks of vile, immoral, bad thoughts, people that plot bad, evil things in their brain. God can actually give a person's mind over to that. Thirdly, a depraved mind produces a mind filled with greed. Greed. This is what one writer said is unlimited selfishness. It's just the opposite of thou shalt not covet. This is somebody that really their whole goal in life is to get more and more, covet more and more. They're driven to get more and more. It's a mindset of greed. Now again, this is God who's saying, I can give your mind over to that stuff. And if you have that, probably the world will applaud you and say, hey, that's great. The guy wants more and more and more and more and more. God says, your mind is off. You're leaving me out. Fourthly, a depraved mind produces a mind and life that's filled with evil. And that particular word, kakia, is a particular Greek word that talks about a mind and life that is morally corrupt. It's vicious. It does things that would hurt other people. I mean, where does somebody come up with the idea in their brain, hey, it would be fun to go down the street and hit some old woman in the head with my fist? Where do you get that idea? That isn't 
an idea normal people have. That's not an idea God-fearing people have. Where do you get that? In a depraved mind. The fifth trait is a depraved mind and life will be filled with envy. Envy. Jealous of what other people have to the point you resent them. Don't kid yourself. This can dominate your mind. And it could be a judgment of God that dominates your mind if you're not dealing with it. You can walk through life jealous of what other people have. You can waste your entire existence jealous of what they have and not appreciating and thanking God for what you have. The sixth attribute is a depraved mind can produce a mind and life that's filled with murder. It's interesting that there's a close connection in Greek between the spelling of the envy and the murder. And it would seem to suggest that it is somebody who kills somebody because they want to get something or they're envious of something or they want to gain something so they kill somebody just to get it. We are living in a world in which a baby will be aborted because we don't want the expense. Money. Kill the baby. Or a baby will be aborted because we want pleasure. We'll murder a baby because of pleasure and money. That kind of thinking is an indication God's given up people. The seventh attribute is a depraved mind produces a mind and life filled with strife. That's an interesting word. Somebody that's always... Always contentious, always wrangling, always debating. This kind of person is not interested in truth or facts. This person is just a person who is just out for argument, for the sake of argument. Doesn't even care what truth or facts are. The eighth quality is the depraved mind produces a mind and life filled with deceit. There are people that use very deceptive tactics to try to get their own way. I mean, where do these ideas come up for scamming people? Who comes up with these ideas? If you can call somebody at their home on the phone and you can get certain information, we can take everything they have. Where does the mind come up with that? We get calls here at the church on a semi-regular basis of people who want money. And we have a real policy here. We track stuff down. I mean, we track facts down. And we track them down to quite a degree before we go ahead and help someone. Because people scam churches. Where do they get this mindset? Doesn't come from God. It came from a depraved mind. The ninth attribute is a depraved mind produces a life and mind that's filled with malice. That's talking about constant hatred and spite and evil out to harm people. There are people, that's what they do. They have a mindset. I just want to go out to harm them. Tenth, a depraved mind produces a mouth filled with gossip. Gossip. Always whispering behind a person's back. Gossip. Spread gossip in secret. That's actually the word. You whisper behind somebody's back. You didn't get that idea from the Lord. Let's go gossip about somebody. You didn't get that idea from God. You got it from your depraved mind. And if you're not careful, that depraved mind can end up being a judgment against you. 
The uh, 11th attribute is the depraved mind produces a mouth filled with slander. Slander is an interesting word, kara la luz, which means you verbally abuse people, verbally defame people. A depraved mind, 12th, is a life filled with hate. And the particular hatred here is a hatred of God and his word. People don't want to hear about God and his word. The 13th attribute is a depraved mind produces a life that is insolent. And that speaks of a person who ends up being violent and finds pleasure in hurting other people. There are people that they have this in their minds and they want to go out and do it in the world. This is how depraved their minds are. They actually reach a level of their mental thinking where they want to go out and hurt others because it makes them happy. I mean, I don't know how some of these people that take things from people can go to sleep at night. It's because their mind's depraved. The 14th attribute is the depraved mind produces a life that is arrogant. And by the way, this is talking about a high opinion of self that's way above what's real. There are people that are proud and haughty. They're always putting themselves above others and they're living in some delusional land as if they've arrived at some level they don't really have. They know they don't have it. But the fact is, that's how their mind thinks. Then a depraved mind is a life that's boastful. And I love what Calvin said about this particular word. This kind of person is nothing but an empty wind. I love Calvin's comment on that. The boast of themselves is not based on reality. I mean, there are people that go around and they boast. You know how they play the game. They always want you to know they came out on top and their family's better than somebody else. They're always bragging about how they've one-upped you. I mean, you're going through something. Oh, yeah, boy, we've been there. You know how that game is played. There are people whose minds, that's the way they think. The 16th reality is a depraved mind produces a mind that invents evil. Actually, invents evil. You can say this about godless people. They're creative. Just when you think you've seen about everything imaginable, they'll come up with something new and you're going, man, we haven't seen that level of low before. The 17th trait is a depraved mind produces a life that is disobedient. Disobedient to parents. Parents who raised them. Parents who sacrificed for them. Parents who did a lot for them. You have a commandment, honor your father and mother. But a depraved mind of a depraved child says, I'm not doing that. The 18th quality is a depraved mind produces a life that is without understanding. That would indicate they have no moral or biblical sense. And again, these kinds of people may have great worldly knowledge, but they don't have any knowledge that's right before the Lord. None. The 19th trait is a depraved mind produces a person who's untrustworthy. You know, in almost every church, there are people that say things and you quickly learn. You can't depend on them. They got a mind. It's like they're programmed in their mind. I've never figured that out. You think that somebody would grow out of that, but oh yeah, I'll be there. Then they don't show. Yeah, you can count on me. I'll do that. And then they don't. That is a mindset. And it's not a godly mindset. It's not a good mindset. It's a mindset that is coming from a depraved mind. The 20th attribute is the depraved mind produces a person who's unloving, 
heartless minds that don't have the normal love that should be had for people who should be loved. And 21st, a depraved mind produces a person who is unmerciful, never shows mercy, never shows pity to anybody who's helpless. God says, you don't want me in your mind? All right. All right. I'll let your mind go deeper and deeper and deeper into depravity. And just like the limbo used to say, how low can you go? Well, people can go lower. As I mentioned previously, we can go so low that we want to teach our children to choose a life that will lead them to the abandonment of God. That's how low we can go. And as Paul wraps up this section, he makes three statements. He says, first of all, there in verse 32, the people who are involved in this kind of sin, they know the ordinance of God. People know that what they're doing is wrong. They know they're doing wrong. Don't kid yourself. They know what they're doing is against the word of God and against God. They know it when they do it. When they do it, they feel dirty. There's something about them that says, ah, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have said that. They know it. They know the ordinance of God. Paul says they know it. Secondly, those involved in their sin know they're worthy of death. Deep in their heart and mind of every human is the knowledge judgment's coming. Judgment's coming. A person may flaunt their sin. They may laugh at their sin. You may get people to approve of your sin and applaud of your sin, but deep down inside your own heart, you know, you know there's a day coming I'm going to face God on this. And finally, the people involved in their sin heartily approve of it. They approve of their sin. Verse 32, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. You know, the problem with you just allowing a little bit of this stuff to seep into your life or your mind is that if you don't deal with it, a little more will seep in and a little more. And then you will discover, you'll reach a point where you approve what you're doing. You don't want to go there. If anything in that list has struck you, you don't want that dominating your life for the rest of your life. You don't want to go there. The old adage is true when it comes to depravity. Birds of a feather always flock together. People that are dominated by sin are drawn to other people dominated by sin. They're not drawn to God and his word. They're not drawn to private, honest, open heart business with the Lord. They're not drawn to that. They're drawn to those people that approve what they're doing. So someone that's caught up with lust will be drawn to someone else caught up with lust. Someone that's caught up in gossip will be drawn to someone else caught up in gossip. Someone else that's caught up in envy will be drawn to somebody else caught up in envy. That's how it works. 
We've been told by politicians and educators that the key to this, the key to straightening out men, is we need to educate them and invent more laws. It's not going to work. It won't work. See, the problem is the heart and the mind. There's the problem. And evil is going to continue to escalate down until God puts a stop to it. So he says to people who are not wanting him to take over their life, I am going to put a stop to it. You live out your days. I'm giving you up. You'll come to me at some point. It'll be way too late. Like that mother and father, you're on your own. I want to leave us with three parting thoughts from this text this morning. If a person continually disregards God and his word and pursues sin, you need to understand this, you're playing a dangerous game of Russian roulette. God may choose to abandon you. So you either give yourself to the Lord or you risk God giving you to yourself. Secondly, believers in Jesus Christ should be manifesting a new nature far removed from this list. I love something D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said. Unfortunately, we all know more about things mentioned on this list than we should know. But man, we should be moving way away from this list. And finally, the purpose of this section in the context of the book of Romans is to show that all are guilty. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All deserve the wrath of God. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Now you may be thinking here today, would God really give up a person? Let me give you one example that you cannot deny. When the Lord Jesus Christ was hanging on that cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? At that moment, he was experiencing an abandonment from God the Father because of our sin. And if you will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, God will save you. You never have to worry about being abandoned by him. Let's pray. If you've never invited the Lord Jesus into your life, I wouldn't waste another second not doing that. Right where you sit, just pray something like this. God, I'm a sinner, and I want Jesus Christ as my Savior, and I invite him into my life right now to come in and save me from all my sin. Our Heavenly Father, we bow before you this morning, and we thank you for the Word of God. And we agree with Dr. Jones, who basically said we all know more about things in this list than we ought to know. And that's a fact. But we are also grateful for grace, and we're grateful that there's another side to this, and we can be transformed by the renewing of our minds on the Word of God. And I pray, Lord, we would invest our time wisely and spend our days wisely as we wait for the return of the Lord so that we would have minds that think clearly and righteously and justly. We would not be given over to any of the things in that vice list that we saw this morning. For anything that you've done here today, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.